too attractive and suave to be a good Peter Parker. Hell is actually just a tiny crack uh, that's barely the size of the width of a blade of grass. The harrowing of hell gives me chills every time. How do you want to die? The healthy are in no need of a doctor, and the healer is for the sick. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hey everyone, welcome to Unreliable Narrators, a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. And today we're discussing the 2021 Marvel movie Spider-Man No Way Home. We wanted to do, to do Into the Spider-Verse, but it was retired, so we did this instead. It's true, we thought we might as well still do Spider-Man. Well, I, I kind of feel like um, uh, No Way Home only exists because Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse exists. I agree, I agree. The whole Spider-Man multiverse. I mean, we should probably talk about Into the Spider-Verse a little bit, because I feel like it did, it, 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 it changed a lot about Spider-Man. I mean, it was amazing how successful it was, but the fact that you mm-hmm. can bring multiple Spider-Mans in and sort of question what it means to be Spider-Man and also why Spider-Man is so uh, popular, perhaps the most popular superhero, because it's objectively the best, which we all know. <laughs> which we all know. I was literally thinking about, I was talking about how I wanted to say that Spider-Man is objectively the best superhero. And I was like, ooh, Raymond and I can have a fight about that. And then I realized, wait, no, I think Raymond just agrees with that. And so this is just going to be a Spider-Man fan fest going on here. Yeah, we're on one page about this. Spider-Man is the best. (laughs) This doesn't always happen. Okay, well, let's talk about Spider-Man then. So first thing uh, that I want to talk about, um, before we talk about how... Like, Spider-Man in general, and what makes... Well, no, now I'm rethinking. Let's maybe talk a little bit about Spider-Man as a concept before we talk about the specific plot of this movie. Um, So, obviously, we're on the same page about the fact that Spider-Man is just the best superhero. The question of what what makes him the best superhero, um, I think, is a question that's worth considering. Uh... Obviously, the question in Into the Spider-Verse, like you just said, is basically, like, what is the defining factor of Spider-Man? If there are all these people who are able to be Spider-Man in all these different worlds, and um, their identity isn't, like, the fact that they're nerdy high school kids. (laughs) Like, one of them's a pig, and one of them's a girl, and there are different nationalities, and... What does it mean to be Spider-Man? What is it that makes someone Spider-Man? And I think that's going to end up being pertinent to the movie, too, because No Way Home is a lot about identity. Um, Peter Parker's identity, people remembering who he is. So what do you think? What makes someone Spider-Man? Well, it's interesting when you go back to the origin of Spider-Man. I mean, the creator, Stan Lee, uh, may he rest in peace, because he was not the first people person to invent the genre of superheroes. Uh, Superman was the first superhero, and I believe that there were 
these uh, two two Jewish boys living in an apartment in New York who came up with the idea of Superman. And he's a creature from another planet. And so that's one thing that's very remote from our experience. And also he's a reporter for a upscale newspaper in New York. Newspapers are obsolete and nobody here is an upscale reporter. So it's a very different world from <laughs> ours. Um, and... And then the other major superhero is Batman, who is a little bit more like us in the sense that he's a human being who's from this planet, but he's also a billionaire. And his bat mm-hmm. identity, the idea, the symbolism of the bat, um, well, he kind of leans into the symbolism of the bat. He, he becomes a bat, I guess. Um, so it's a very cerebral thing, a very philosophical thing, um, and can... And maybe morose twenty-year-old twenty-somethings can relate to Batman, but that's that's a small percentage of the population. Peter Parker <laughs> is more like most of us because, first of all, he has an actual origin story that's quite different from either Superman or Batman because it's something he's a normal kid and something happened to him. He was bit by a spider. And so it, it 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 is more like it fits the 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 fancy phrases bare similitude or the bare similitude is like the bare minimum amount it takes for somebody to accept something is real, and I think Spider Man sort of fits that better than either Batman or Superman, because Spider Man, you can really believe that. You could believe that it's logical. You could sort of believe that it's something that could happen to you. Um, and also his means of of propelling himself about the city is not only way more cool, uh, but it also just sort of feels more plausible. Batman, they try to make Batman's means of uh, lo- uh, uh, transportation plausible, but... It it isn't, and Superman is just impossible. So, and there's just something so cool about being able to swing around a city and and wanting to go up on a high tower when you want to be alone and all that sort of thing. And then he has all of these normal human anxieties that a normal kid might have. Um, so okay, but then the question is, I guess, what does it mean to be Spider Man? I think part of it is being is is kind of having the same origin story, like you were all bit by a spider. You were an ordinary person who was bit by a spider. And then and then that you have to deal with these kind of human anxieties that, that everyone has. While you were talking, well, a couple things. First of all, it just struck me that Spider-Man, since we're talking about Superman and Batman, Batman City is Gotham City, which is obviously a made-up city that's considerably darker and more crime-ridden than most cities that we live in. It's a little bit Chicago-ish, but it's worse than Chicago. Um, And then we have Superman, who I believe his city is Metropolis, I want to say, which also is like uh, not a real city. It's a parody of a real city. Whereas I mean, it's Spider-Man, basically New York, but it's, but you know. Yeah, yeah. But then Spider-Man, like, is a New Yorker. He's actually in New York. It's a real city. So that's one thing that I think, like, Spider-Man is very set in the real world among real people. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking of as you were talking is 
One thing that I think is central to the idea of what it means to be Spider-Man is the fact that you're a normal person who gets this power and the power doesn't make you more emotionally stable. It doesn't make you like more mentally healthy. It doesn't make you a god. All it does is it gives you this additional weird power where you have spider-like abilities. And what Spider-Man is told, and I think that the central thing that makes Spider-Man Spider-Man is the fact that he's told with great power comes great responsibility. And he's not more equipped, really, to deal with that responsibility once he's bit by the spider. He just has more power. And the central message, I think, of Spider-Man is the fact that you're an ordinary person who's dealing with your own problems and it's not fair that you have more responsibility. The duty that you have to the world is not fair, but you have it anyway just because you have power. And I think that's such an important message, both for like a coming of age story, that Spider-Man is always someone sort of coming into his own, um, learning what the world is like and becoming a full-fledged adult. Um, that's important for that kind of person. And like, haven't we all been there? I'm still there. I'm still learning that with great power comes great responsibility. And you know what? It also kind of makes, it's very Shakespearean too, because that famous, you know, how Shakespeare, how Shakespeare famously said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon him, uh, yeah. thrust, upon, thrust upon them. And the first two are really the setup for the third one, which is the punchline. Some have greatness thrust upon them. And really the point of that line is that the human story, the story that's ours, that's Shakespeare's story, that's the myth, the Shakespearean mythological figure, is the third character, which is the one who has greatness thrust upon them. And and that's, I mean, so that's really more our story than the first two. Those are Those are characters that we perceive, but the ones that we really feel are us. The character that's yep. us is the third one, the one who feels like they have had greatness thrust upon them. So I think that's a good jumping off point to talk about the movie itself. So here's a quick summary. It's not a very complicated plot, so this didn't take too long, but I have some background information that I want to throw in that the movie doesn't even really go into. This is a continuation of the, the Tom Holland Spider-Man franchise, which uh, is the third major Spider-Man reboot in the last 10-15 years. The first big like live-action Spider-Man movie featured Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, um, and that one got really famous. It had the most famous Green Goblin, played by Willem Dafoe. Um, and then the second and third movies weren't as great, but the first one you know, got really popular, very famous movie. And then you have the Andrew Garfield movies, which are uh, 2010's much more recent which, in my opinion, and most people thought this, they were just terrible. <laughs> really bad iteration of Spider-Man. For various reasons, partially because Andrew Garfield is just, like, too attractive and suave to be yeah. a good Peter Parker. <laughs> and a little bit too old, too. Yeah, a little bit too old. So, there's that reboot. That reboot was not super successful. Um, I mean, it was successful insofar as, like, a Spider-Man movie that is high budget will always be successful. But everybody kind of acknowledged that it just wasn't good. Um, and so now we have, like, the third major reboot and the only one to to take place after 
uh, this Spider-Man was acquired by Marvel from Sony. So we've seen lots of Spider-Man. And I think that that's probably why the movie took the direction that it did. Um, They were recognizing the fact that there have been a lot of (laughs) Spider-Men recently and kind of trying to wrangle all of those movies together um, and all of those different plot lines and different directions that people are taking. So, okay. Uh, and I, I was a quick, a quick interjection on this, and this is relevant to the theme of why people love Spider-Man so much. Um, it's so interesting to me that the Spider-Man franchise, a Spider-Man franchise has never actually been successful because the first <laughs> Spider-Man franchise with uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 3 was, like, a huge flop. Nobody liked it. So that's why they rebooted it with Andrew Garfield. Because it's like, well, we kind of blew it uh, with the first one. So we're going to try again. And then it flopped again. And then we come here with Tom Holland. Um, It's so funny that it keeps on failing. But that the audience is so willing to give Spider-Man a second chance. Because they love Spider-Man so much. Spider-Man as a character just doesn't die. He doesn't die. Well, also... I will I will die on this hill. The best iterations of Spider-Man have always been cartoon iterations. The Spectacular Spider-Man is phenomenal. A phenomenal cartoon series. The uh, Into the Spider-Verse obviously is fantastic. Um, I actually really like the Tom Holland uh, version too. So I think that they kind of hit, hit their stride in terms of live action Spider-Man. But cartoon Spider-Man has always been good. Okay, so... At the end of the previous Tom Holland Spider-Man movie, the last thing that happened was everyone found out Peter Parker Spider-Man. We open with that scene, and suddenly there's lots of negative publicity surrounding Peter Parker and what he's doing. So, uh, Peter Parker is getting, like, negative feedback. Uh, His girlfriend, MJ, also getting, like, bad feedback. Um... And everybody, like, isn't happy, and he just wants to go back to the time when nobody knew who he was. Or they knew who Peter Parker was, but they didn't know Spider-Man. Also, isn't it partly because he's been falsely accused of murder? Yes. Yes. We have sort of a Dark Knight thing going on here, (laughs) Um, where they think he committed a crime that he did not commit. Um, So he asks Doctor Strange for help. Uh... But Doctor Strange um, is trying to do this spell that's going to cause people to forget who Spider-Man is, but remember Peter Parker. But uh, Peter wants his loved ones to remember who Spider-Man is, so he keeps messing up the spell. It's this really funny scene. Uh, Tom Holland and Benedict Cumberbatch have, like, good chemistry. And accidentally, they break open the multiverse. And they release all of these villains from the other Spider-Man timelines. um, Who are also coming in from... Like, the actors are coming in from different movies. Um, For example, probably the most famous is Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborn or Green Goblin makes a triumphant return (laughs) um, in this movie. Which I didn't know. I didn't know anything about the movie. And when I saw it in theaters, the minute that he appeared on screen... I was, like, had to contain my excitement. I was really, really happy with bringing all these people back. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about some of these villains because I think their choice of villains is really interesting and also, 
like plays into some of the major themes in the movie. So, it uh, also Otto you really Octavius. have you really have to give all of the background here uh, because uh, Marvel is extremely overconfident in how well their audience will know all of these villains and gives no explanation whatsoever. Um, well, I wouldn't yep. say overconfident. I think they're probably rightfully confident because <laughs> they know that they have quite quite the monopoly on on the Spider-Mans. And so they have an educated audience. Well, I kind of actually on that note, I kind of like the fact that the Spider-Man universe is so universal that um, we, it's a little bit like uh, how the Iliad just opens in the middle of the story and they don't need to give any background because everyone who would have been listening to the beginning of the Iliad just knows exactly what's going on um, and knows all of these characters, knows all the backstory. Spider-Man is kind of like that. <laughs> like, um, I remember my uh, my now fiancé was going to see the new Venom movie. And I had heard nothing about the Venom movie. And he, like, came back and I was like, how was Eddie Brock? And he was like, how do you know about, how do you know Eddie Brock was a character in the movie? And I was like, I know the Spider-Man story. Eddie Brock is Venom. And this movie does a really good job of, like, playing into that kind of universal knowledge. Anyway, okay. Villains. Otto Octavius otherwise known as Doc Ock or Dr. Octopus, um, his backstory, his villain backstory, he invented this like four-armed apparatus thing um, because he's a really smart scientist. Um, But then there was this radiation accident that happened that fused the apparatus to his body. And really important is also that the, the radiation accident damaged his brain. So he got brain damage from that which is ultimately what leads to his life of crime and his villainy. So he's a, he has a little bit of an unstable childhood. Um, he has some sad backstory. And so he's not a perfect person at all. Um, but he does... He isn't a villain until the radiation accident happens and then, you know, his brain gets damaged. Um, obviously, you have Norman Osborn, the most famous of the Green Goblins. There are lots of different characters who are you know, claim the title Green Goblin, but he's the first one and the most famous one. Um, He is exposed to this experimental formula at his company Oscorp, and he is driven insane by that. So he basically has schizophrenia. Um, He's like Gollum and Smeagol. He has one side of him that uh, is the Green Goblin that is like controlling him. And then he has this other side of him that just wants to be a normal person that that isn't evil. Um, And those two sides of him are always battling. You have Kurt Connors who is the lizard. Um, His backstory is that he was a really good person. He was just trying to invent a serum um, that was going to allow uh, amputees, mostly soldiers who had lost a limb in battle or after after fighting in the war, um, to regrow their amputated limbs. Uh, But he used himself as the first test subject and something went wrong. And then he turns into the lizard uh, because the the serum is using... um, chemicals and biological matter and stuff from lizards because they can regrow their limbs. Uh, fun fact, in the comics, Spider-Man actually also cures Kirk Connors, um, which I think is just an interesting thing that they use that in this movie. Um, we have Max Dillon, Electro, who, total accident that he becomes Electro, total accident that he, like, turns evil. He's fixing something electrical. He's struck by lightning where the building is struck by lightning. I'm not sure. I don't remember which one. And that's how he becomes Electro. Um, And then we have Flint Marco, 
Sandman, whose backstory also, we really don't get into this in the movie, but uh, he's actually the one who shot Uncle Ben in the original story. So he's he was originally a petty thief um, trying to get money because he was trying to uh, treat or cure his sick daughter, Penny. Um, and during one of his heists, something goes wrong. He accidentally shoots Uncle Ben, who happens to be nearby. That's how Uncle Ben dies, which... I just think it's fascinating. So he's for years haunted by Uncle Ben's death. Um, eventually, he's still, you know, living his life of crime, just trying to save his daughter. He's chased by the police into a particle physics lab. He falls into an experimental particle accelerator. I don't know what that is, but apparently it's a thing. Um, all the molecules in his body sort of get re rearranged and he becomes Sandman. Um, so those are the major villains that are used in this movie, and all of the villains are pulled from their universes into Tom Holland's Peter Parker universe just before their deaths, uh, which is what creates the, the major moral dilemma of the movie. Stephen Strange, Doctor Strange, wants to send these villains back to their universes, but Peter Parker realizes that by doing that, they are going to cause their deaths. They're going to allow them to die in their universes and he decides that he wants to try and cure them before before these villains go back um he succeeds in curing doc ock dr octopus but the villains at that point turn on peter um the green goblin primarily like convinces them to turn on peter the green goblin kills aunt may um, and she, in this universe, is the one who dies and tells Peter, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Um, and so at this point, Peter Parker is, is ready to give up. Uh, and then, you know, the Spider-Men from the other universes. So we have Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. They show up. They come to help him. And I want to talk about that a little bit later. But let's maybe pause and talk about the moral dilemma. Because... I think it's really intriguing, and I had a whole debate with my family after watching the movie um, where there were very heated opinions on what side you should take on this whole issue. Um, what do you think about the moral question of, it, in this movie, is Peter Parker right to want to cure these villains? Is it right for him to think he can't send them back to their deaths? Should he just let their stories play out in the universes that they came from? What do you think? I had a, I guess, a philosophical problem with that, with with the with the movie at that point. But it actually had nothing to do with that issue of whether he ought to have cured him, cured them or not, or or let or kind of let destiny run its course, which is an interesting debate for sure. And I, I will, I'll be, I'll be interested to hear what you think of what your opinion on it on it is. But actually. My quibble with it had little had less to do with that, and more to do with the a priori a priori assumption that you can cure them, and the means of curing them was medicinal. You just it was sort of like you get an injection and then you'll be they'll become good again, which I guess is a kind of culturally it's sort of like a psychological or psychiat psychiatrist's way of looking at a human being of what makes someone moral. And, you know, it's like all of these villains became villains for different reasons, which means that if they were going to become good again, then it needs to be individualized to their narratives. For example, I mean, Kurt Connors, 
he was turned into a lizard. He didn't really have any sort of evil intentions. So maybe turning him back into a human was all it would take. Max Dillon, Electro, he had anger issues from the beginning. And where did his anger issues come from? So, you know, turning him back into a human wouldn't solve his anger issues. You got to address that. And then the Sandman, he was entirely motivated by treating his sick daughter. So you'd have to deal with his sick daughter. Everyone's got sort of a different chip on their shoulders. But Peter, there was a sort of, and I guess maybe it's just kind of like a, maybe I'm, I'm being nitpicky about this because they they had a big plot to to tell and they they were trying to address everything at once but I think there is a problem of Peter Parker coming out with a one size fits fits all that's going to fix every everything and I don't know maybe maybe that mo- maybe the movie sort of addresses that but but I don't know I have a lot to say about what you just said so this question is really interesting to me um i am a big fan actually of the way that they treated what you're talking about which is the method of the idea of curing the villains and i i understand what you're saying about how it's all kind of one size fits all you just like come up with a serum and somehow you you cure everybody um what i do like is i like the acknowledgement that out of all superhero villains Spider-Man villains are the most sympathetic and the most uh, the most troubled in a way that is parallel to sickness. Um, all of them, all of these villains, and this, I think it's also interesting, their choice of villains, because first of all, they just picked, you know, the most common villains, <laughs> the biggest Spider-Man villains. But also, all of them are uh, afflicted in some way that wasn't really their fault. You know, maybe, maybe Electro, maybe Max Dillon had some anger issues before he was struck by lightning. But he didn't do anything to cause himself to be struck by lightning. Um, Doc Ock didn't, uh, wasn't the way he was. He wasn't a villain before his brain got damaged, and that wasn't his fault. Um, Norman Osborn, driven insane, having to fight himself, um... The Green Goblin is really a demon. He is not the demon, right? He's being afflicted by something else. So all of them are sick in some way. And I actually really appreciated the acknowledgement that they're not, they're complicated. Not that there's nothing bad about any of them. Not that there's nothing wrong with them as people as well. But that's true of everybody. And they're not, often they're not villains or, um, in trouble because of their own choices. There's but something that be- happened to them that they couldn't have stopped. But wouldn't it have been a, a very a, a very interesting story if instead of curing the villains and taking away their powers, Peter Parker learns to tell them with great power comes great responsibility? I agree. I agree. And that would have been a different way to deal with it. Um, but I think that also would have uh, not acknowledged necessarily the fact that something did happen to a lot of these villains that did not happen to Peter Parker, which is that something was fundamentally altered about their brains. Like, well, I think one reason that the Green Goblin is kind of the primary, like, villain that's discussed in this movie, that he's sort of at the forefront of all of these villains, is he's kind of the case study for that. That this formula made, you know, a demon in his brain... (laughs) And that didn't happen to Peter Parker. Um, and of course, of course, I think especially with someone like um, 
Electro or Sandman, maybe, uh, there's less evidence that something was fundamentally altered in their in their brain chemistry. <laughs> um, it's it's so you know that kind of story I think would apply really well and be a really good story for Sandman or Electro. But someone like the Green Goblin, he has to be like the the sin has to be exercised. <laughs> the demon has to be kicked out. He can't just live with being the Green Goblin. And I think. I just think in general, acknowledging that fact is important. There, there's also kind of a, a, an arbitrary division of, of rules here on what sort of accidents affect your brain and what, uh, what don't. Because spiders are actually rather horrendous creatures. Uh, they, they eat their husbands and drink blood and everything. So, so it, Peter Parker got bit by a spider. Why didn't he really become like a spider in his brain more a little bit. I mean, couldn't he have just as easily become something like like the Hulk or something like Venom? But he doesn't. He doesn't because he's the hero of the story. Yeah. He's the protagonist, so he's the good guy. <laughs> That's why it doesn't happen to him. It's true. It's true. And this movie doesn't really try to deal with that fact. Um, but yeah, the fact that the villains, it's acknowledged that they are sick and that... You know, the healthy are in no need of a doctor and the healer is for the sick, I think, is kind of a a basic message here. Um, mm-hmm. That rather okay. than being completely, completely against these people, there is compassion for them because there is some sense in which these villains deserve compassion, which is both a nod to the fact that that's just how Spider-Man villains are, as opposed to like Lex Luthor or the Joker, <laughs> who don't deserve your sympathy um, they might be sick, but they don't, there's nothing really redemptive or possible to be redeemed about them. And that's just not true of Spider-Man villains. And so coming in with so, some compassion for them, I really appreciated. Okay. So the initial question that you asked was, um, what's the, the merit of Spider-Man wanting to cure the villains versus letting them meet their own fates? And that was mm-hmm. the debate that was sparked among your family. And I kind of went off in a different direction and had it had a different debate. So do you want to talk about that particular debate? Um, what, <laughs> sure. what are the two sides of that? And and what side did you take on it? Sure. Uh, to be clear, we actually debated both things, <laughs> what you just said, and then also this thing. Um, but basically, you could say that the universe that Peter Parker is living in, it's his responsibility again, going back to the great responsibility that he has, it's his responsibility to take care of the world that he is in. And he should not play God and try to solve the problems of all of these other universes. And that if something was happening in that universe and he disrupted it by sending those villains back, he's not morally responsible then for their deaths. Um, That was already going to happen he has a responsibility to make sure they're not wreaking havoc in this world. Um, and sending them back, theoretically, is the best way to do that. That's the one side of the debate. The other side of the debate is, that's not true. He got in the way. Like, that would have been true if he never knew that there were these other universes, but now he has them. And he is taking an active role in their deaths if he does send them back. Especially because he has he's intelligent enough and he has enough resources that he could potentially cure them. Um, And so he has a moral responsibility to try. Uh, I came down on the second side. I thought what he did was the right thing to do. Um, I don't think that him sending the villains back 
to uh to their deaths would be a a morally correct thing to do. I'm not I'm not totally convinced that it would be actively immoral, but I think he was doing a good thing. It is a good deed to try and save them. Um and he doesn't have a responsibility to send them back. But that that's that's what I thought about it. I'm curious what you think. I feel like the 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 quandary we are faced with here is the trolley problem. <laughs> Basically. Oh. Because it's like, okay, well, you know, if there's a disaster that's imminent, um, that's imminent almost in either direction, then what's the morality of of choosing to play a part in determining the outcome of it? That that that's, I guess, the the counterpoint to that problem of well, Peter Parker ought to have done something is well if he does something, what if he actually ends up making the situation worse, which I guess sort of happens in the in the story. But but then you could go back and say that was the begin that was the problem to begin with, is he he tried to meddle with things and and make things better, and part of that was because of, I guess, for lack of a better word, it was a. It was a moral conviction that made him want to change the past so that people wouldn't remember who who Peter Parker was. He wanted his friends to get into the schools that they wanted. They were all they all had become persona non grata and weren't being accepted into any of the schools of their choice. Their careers were being ruined because they were friends of Peter Parker. So he had a moral. So so actually, the question you're asking is was already asked at the beginning of the movie, which is, you know, should have Peter Parker have have uh, have um, asked to mess with the fabric of space and time to begin with to help his friends? Uh, because he, he did it for the, for that reason. And it was an it was an admirable, I guess, a sort of selfless reason. But there's two problems with that is one. Well, one, it, it would, uh, you know, as a hero, he ought to do something. And two, if he didn't, the movie wouldn't happen. I have another reason, too, for appreciating the way that the movie treats um, Peter Parker's desire to save, to save the villains. And it has to do with, okay, so do you know the story of Iphigenia? Nope. Okay. In Greek mythology, um, a key component of the mythology before, chronologically before the Trojan War, is that Agamemnon and Menelaus and Achilles and all these other people who were suitors of Helen, right? They all wanted to marry Helen. And Helen's father was like, they're all gonna be at, like, they're gonna try to kill me (laughs) if I give her to one of them. And so he makes them all promise that whoever Helen marries, whoever he gives Helen to, everyone else has to swear that they're going to back that guy up. That they're going to, like, if anyone ever tries to mess with them, they're going to come in and and protect her and this guy. And they all, thinking that it's going to be them, swear the oath. And it turns out that it's, you know, it's one of them. It's Menelaus. And so they all have to abide by that oath. So Agamemnon is one of these people who swears to protect them. And so Agamemnon, when Helen gets taken from Menelaus, he's like, well, I swore an oath, I gotta go. But... What happens is that um, Artemis, one of the Greek goddesses, uh, prevents the winds from blowing in the right direction. 
Like, she sends unfavorable winds, so he can't get to Troy, and so he has to send some messengers to an oracle to be like, why is this happening? Um, what do I need to do? And the message comes back, you have to sacrifice your only daughter, Iphigenia, which is a very Abraham and Isaac story, except that Iphigenia is actually sacrificed. Um, Agamemnon has to sacrifice Iphigenia, who's this, you know, completely innocent young virgin. Um, she is sacrificed and the favorable winds come and that is what allows him to get to Troy. That's also incidentally why Clytemnestra begins to hate Agamemnon and why she ultimately uh, has a an affair and kills him when he comes back from Troy. So that's the story of Iphigenia. That story is told countless times, right? That's a fundamental Greek myth. Um, it's alluded to in all sorts of Western uh, works, like works in the, the Western canon of literature. Um, it's obviously alluded to in Greek stories and in Roman stories. Um, that, that story is just, you know, cemented, cemented in the mythology. And there are slightly different versions, but the one thing that's always the same is that Iphigenia always gets sacrificed, right? Iphigenia always dies. Okay. There is a version of the story told in the play Iphigenia by Racine. And uh, in Racine's Iphigenia, um, he tells the story basically the same, right? He goes through the whole story. And the first time I read this play, I was like, yeah, okay, I know the story of Iphigenia. I know what's going to happen. And I'm going through, and then we get to the last act, right? We get to act five, and there's a different character who ends up being the scapegoat. And not to spoil the plagues, it's great. But Iphigenia is not sacrificed. Iphigenia lives. And I cannot tell you how happy I was reading the end of that play. I have never been so overjoyed <laughs> to discover the ending of a play. And it wasn't just because it was a happy ending. I wouldn't have cared so much about the ending, except for the fact that I had seen Iphigenia die over and over and over again. And here in this one version of the story, Iphigenia got to live. Um, something similar actually is last year, I was teaching a class and I was telling the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and I was explaining the sad ending of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. And I was explaining the different versions and I said, oh yeah, in, in one version, uh, Orpheus turns around because he thinks that he's all the way out, but he hasn't quite made it out yet. And so he turns around and then Eurydice has to go back to the underworld. And it's really sad. And then the other version is he just is so full of doubt and he is so afraid that Hades was tricking him that he turns around halfway, halfway there. And then she, she has to turn around. And one of my students just in this horrified voice from the back of the classroom was like, do you mean there's no version where she makes it out? And I had to be like, yeah, there's not. Like, <laughs> there's not a version of the story where Eurydice makes it. Um, and I think it's so human that from his perspective, like from that student's perspective, it was okay, ultimately, as long as there was one version where she made it. The fact that there were so many versions where she didn't, if there was one version that would have been comforting to him. 
And it was disturbing in some way that there wasn't, that there wasn't this one version where she made it. In the same way that Racine's Iphigenia, for me, was the one version where Iphigenia makes it, where she she gets to be okay, where she has a happy ending. And that took a long time to get to, get to my point, but I love this movie in part because it's the one version where these guys get to make it. <laughs> it's the one version where things turn out okay for the Green Goblin. Norman Osborn doesn't get saved in any other story. <laughs> right? He doesn't have a happy ending, but we have written him a story in which he does. And I think that the the mythology examples aren't so far-fetched because Spider-Man is a mythology. Um, it is full of... Uh, it's, it's a web of myths that are, there are different versions to the different stories. Like, there's the comics version, and there's the Marvel version, and there's the Tobey Maguire version, and the there's the Andrew Garfield version. And all of those, like, play into each other. But there are some things that are always true in every version, but now we've created this version in which Norman Osborn is saved. Um, and in which, like, there's the, the famous shot from the Andrew Garfield movies of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man um, trying to save... Gwen Stacy and she dies, right? She, like, her neck snaps. And then in this movie, we have that one little shot where Andrew Garfield catches MJ. MJ is falling and he catches her the right way. And he looks at her and there's, like, tears in his eyes. And it's so subtle. They don't go into it. They don't try to be like, oh, yeah, well, he, this is how his girlfriend died. There's just that little moment of him being touched emotionally because... He's done it this time. In this universe, he saved her. And in some way, that's as if he had saved the real Gwen, St Gwen Stacy in his universe. There's something redemptive about that. It's such a, a, strange, uh, a strange assumption that people have that good is just... Evil is something that, that is, seems so much more pervasive or seems to have so much more punch or effect, at least from a storyteller's point of view, than good does. That's usually what the screenwriters assume. Things, horrible things have to happen in order for the movie to, to work. Um, a good thing that happens is just not interesting. I guess if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a screenwriter, there's, there, that is true, but then, like, then you have to ask, is that actually true metaphysically, ultimately? Is evil ultimately more powerful, powerful than good? And what does it mean that one good story, one good version of the story can ultimately triumph over every single other evil version of the story, no matter how numerous there are? I mean, if you look, go back and then they, they kind of the Marvel writers, they kind of touch on this a little bit in the last Avengers movie, because... Doctor Strange is imagining like four billion scenarios and they lose in every single one except for three. And, you know, this is the story that we're going to tell is the story where they survive. Um, yeah. And a, a really good mental picture of this is, is C.S. Lewis is the great divorce because, you know, in the plot of the great divorce, the C.S. Lewis, the protagonist takes starts in hell and he takes a bus trip into heaven and realizes that heaven is solid and he's a ghostly substance and the plot twist in the end and I'm sorry listeners I'm going to spoil it is that they discover that 
the place that they came from, hell, is actually just a tiny crack uh, that's barely the size of the width of a blade of grass. And his mentor, uh, George, George MacDonald, he's the one who's explaining this. So he says, um, I cannot be certain, but this is the crack you came up through. But a crack no bigger than this, you certainly came. But, I gasped, with a feeling of bewilderness, I saw an infinite abyss and cliffs towering up and up, and then this country on top of the cliffs. Aye, but the voyage was not mere locomotion. The bus was increasing in size. Do you mean that hell, all that infinite empty town, is down in some crack like this? Yes, all hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than one atom of this world, the real world. Look at yon butterfly. If it swallowed all hell, hell would not be big enough to do any harm or have any taste. And then he concludes with um, the paradoxical truth. Only one person was big enough to descend into hell and come back out again. The harrowing of hell gives me chills every time. Yeah. Well, so I think that it is... It it's sort of it's it is sort of interesting and yeah it's 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 definitely relevant to, I guess the way you think about you know what Christianity ultimately is because Christianity is, as people have argued, a myth among myths. I mean there is part of that that's true. There is there's a mythological pattern that the Gospels fit into that's different that 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 shares a lot of similarities. Um, you know, between the the sacrifice of the dying God and and that sort of thing. The tropes are there. But why is it that it becomes such an important story, that it's an important myth? It's because it's the one version of the myth where the dying God comes back to life again. And so now all the other myths after before then are irrelevant. It reminds me of um, in Waiting for Godot, Clearly, Samuel Beckett is a little bit troubled by that same sort of idea because they talk about or, uh, Vladimir and Estragon in the opening scenes of Waiting for Godot. They talk about how um, in the four Gospels, only one of the Gospels says that the, the dying thief on the cross is saved. Only one of the Gospels tells that story. Um and then they're, they seem troubled by that fact. They say only one of them says that he's saved. The other ones don't talk about it. The other ones don't say that. But everyone believes the, the gospel that says he's saved. Um, the quote is, that's the only version they know. And for Beckett, it seems like that's a reason maybe to, to distrust it, to think that that's not true. But I think one thing that you're pointing out is we have a natural instinct to believe to believe the redemptive version of the story, to believe the one version in which Iphigenia lives, or in which Norman Osborn is saved, um, or in which the dying god comes back to life, because we know somehow that's the right one. The story in which all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, is just the real one. Somehow that's the world we live in. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that we respond positively to 
the happy version of the story. But it's also interesting to me that the happy version of the story has weight, like it matters and we are emotionally impacted by it because there are so many versions of the story where it doesn't turn out okay. Because there are all the versions in which we don't make it and then Doctor Strange says, how many do they say, how many do we make it? One. <laughs> and that mean that makes it that much better when they do make it. You know, I was just thinking about this uh, the other day about tenses. In English, we have a past tense and we have a pre pre present tense. And I thought, do we have a future tense? And I thought, well, what do you say when you want to talk about something in the future? I, you say, I will go to the store or something. But there's no actual grammatical suffix that will indicate that that thing is in the future. It's the verb will. So what does it mean? I will go to the store. Will implies your will. That you want to go to the store. I will go to the car. I will open the door. So the future doesn't exist unless you want it to. And so in some sense, it's like, well, you know, are you creating reality by saying I'm going to choose this story as opposed to other stories? Um, is it wishful thinking? Well, I guess it is part of your will is part of it. But the fact that you will it also is part of what makes it true. If you want it to happen, the, the, the story is only going to end happily if you want it to end happily. It is up to you, really. I wanted to talk about uh, one, one more, well, actually two things, but I think I'm going to kind of combine them um, in this story that I think are worth mentioning. The first thing is uh, Peter makes a really big sacrifice in this story to save everyone. Um, and it's interesting to me that his sacrifice is to be forgotten because we start with Peter wanting people to forget Spider-Man and then what he gets is people forget, uh, Peter Parker. Peter Parker is the one who's erased and then Spider-Man is really all he has left. His identity becomes to be Spider-Man and then somehow Peter Parker is, is erased from people's minds. Um, he has to be Spider-Man more than he gets to be Peter Parker, um, which is just a, such a different sacrifice. Like, so many times superheroes give their lives, right? Uh, that's what happened to Iron Man, and that was emotionally resonant with people, but Peter's sacrifice in some ways is more real to me because giving up who you are, giving up your, your loved ones, uh, in some ways is so much worse than giving up your life. Um, and that actually is related to the final scene, uh, which I want to talk about for a second, because I've heard different interpretations of this scene, and I'm not, I'm not sure what it means. So, after Peter has made his sacrifice, after he's been forgotten by everybody, he has made a promise to MJ that he'll come back and he'll find her and he will tell her, he will make her remember him. And in the final scene or one of the final scenes, I think it's the second to last scene, he goes and he talks to her and he's going and he's preparing his speech. He's like, okay, I'm Peter Parker. And he's ready to tell her who he is. And he goes in and she's just kind of happily working and they have a little kind of awkward conversation. And he drops his paper and he doesn't, he doesn't do what he promised to do, which is to re like let her know what happened, to tell her the truth. Um, and I've heard different interpretations of that. I've heard some people say that He's accepting the fact that they're going to get back together. They're going to reconnect. It might take a long time. 
but that is okay. And he's not afraid that it won't happen. But I've also heard the interpretation that he's intentionally breaking his promise to her because he thinks she'll be safer, that she'll have a better life if he leaves her alone. And that actually, like, this might be the best universe for her. And so he's letting her forget him and moving on to be Spider-Man so that she'll be safe. Um, which would be, you know, play into the idea of him making a sacrifice. But I'm not sure that that's the intention. I'm not sure that's what they're going for. Uh, how do you interpret that scene? Uh, the former strikes me as more likely, at least just just going off of what the filmmakers were suggesting at, because they were always... They, he doesn't... He hides the paper, but then they look at each other very significantly. Um, <laughs> it's it's sort of obvious that there's that there's gonna be some sort of like uh, re courtship, second birth that's going to go on there in the yeah. future. And he's decided he wants to re romance her or, or something like that, uh, which I guess makes more sense if you really want to you know, rebuild the relationship. You can't just walk in. I mean... Be like, I'm your boyfriend, you don't know me. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be kind of a shock. So, maybe... Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I think the second second interpretation just doesn't seem likely. (laughs) Yeah. Just going off of what they... The the, the way the filmmakers were, were dropping all those hints. Dropping all these hints for us. Last question for you. Is Peter Parker a Christological figure? Are we supposed to read him that way? Uh, well, what do you mean by what is a Christological figure? We've, we've been using, throwing that phrase around, but what does it actually mean? Uh, is he a type of Christ? Is he a Christ figure within the story? Well, you could ask that question about, like, what does it actually mean? personally, for us to be Christians, to be little Christs, to imitate Christ, to be like Christ at some point or another, that we need to be a Christological figure in some sense. Um, in some sense, we have to, to make a sacrifice, but not just any sacrifice, but some kind of ultimate sacrifice. And I think that that's that's true, you know. We we all have to do that. In some sense, we all have to be a Christ figure. But then the question comes uh, comes about, in which you I mean, at least when you're talking in the in the sense of stories, is does this person ultimately embody the Christ figure, the Christ story, in some real deep sense? You know, obviously you could say Jean Valjean, you know, he is a Christological figure. Uh, 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 Sidney Carton, he's, he's a Christological figure, right? Those are obvious parallels going on there. And then you have to ask, is anyone who just makes a noble sacrifice a Christological figure? Peter Parker, if that's the definition, then definitely Peter Parker falls under that category. Um, but I don't know if, if we're speaking in a literary sense, you know, in this ultimate sense, whether it's really fair to say that Peter Parker made a sacrifice, you know, and in that sense, he was acting like Christ would, he was imitating Christ. He was doing something 
selfless, giving something up selflessly. There was a kind of death and an intimation of a, of a kind of resurrection. But there's varying degrees of to which you're imitating Christ. And I think that there are some Christological figures that imitate him to imitate him to a more potent degree. And I think part of it is, you know, we're going on the journey towards imitating him more ultimately. Instead of having a symbolic death, you know, or, or a minor sacrifice, we're having an actual death and an ultimate sacrifice and an ultimate resu- uh, resurrection. Because that's what it would mean to ultimately be a Christological figure, to ultimately imitate Christ. So I think that it's, it's a little bit jumping ahead of things, at least when we think of who Peter Parker is. And who is Peter Parker? He's a kid. He's a boy. He's coming of age. He's learning. He's on a process, on a journey to, to learn that great power comes great responsibility. So to say he's the Christological figure, it might be saying too much. Mm-hmm. I think that he acted in a Christ-like way. That's how I would see it. I think I agree with that. I think the one other thing that I would add to that in the ways in which Peter Parker is sort of starting to enact, starting to be a little Christ in this story is the fact that he, like normally what we see with superheroes is that they have a heart for and a desire to save the innocent people and they fight against the villains and that their lives more or less are that simple. But Peter Parker, out of all all of these superhero characters, has a desire to show compassion and mercy on the sinners of the story, right? Those who are the downtrodden of the earth. Um, and going back to like what I said earlier, the, the healthy are in no need of a doctor and the healer is for the sick. And that he sees them as sick and that he comes as a healer um, for them. And that that's something pleasantly unique, I think, among the way that superheroes tend to treat the villains that they encounter. Um, not, not, it's not that it never happens, but it's not particularly common. Um, and I, I appreciated that. I thought that that was a way in which Peter Parker was showing a different kind of mercy than a lot of other heroes I've seen. Yeah, and you can kind of, again, contrast that with Batman, because Christopher Nolan's Batman says either you die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain, which goes into that whole idea of determinism and inevitability. Mm -hmm. And Peter Parker just says no. Yeah. Yeah, That's just not the way it's going to be. Not for me, not for my friends. In either way, you might you might end up being the loser. You might end up dying. But then the question is, and how do you want to die? Do you want to die? In what sort of mindset do you want to die? Thanks for talking about our favorite superhero. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Swing by next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cut. Cut. Cut that out. That was a terrible joke. I'm ashamed that I made it. <laughs> No, now it's staying. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa Alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast. This podcast is produced by Raymond Docapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme song is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the painting Nobody Likes Me by iHeart, alongside the 2020 documentary The Social Dilemma. Until then, friends, always remember that with great power comes great responsibility. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you There are no new words under the sun Strong.